Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith, coming to you this week from Colorado Springs. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news of Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, a COVID outbreak at Canacook Camps, a popular Christian camp in Missouri. Also on today's program, pastor and author John Ortberg is in the midst of a family drama involving his transgender daughter that has become a public controversy. And Promise Keepers is back, the men's ministry that attracted one million men to the National Mall a generation ago will hold its first big event at the end of this month. We'll discuss what's the same and what's different. But first, we begin today with news that churches and religious nonprofits received at least $6 billion in COVID relief funds, and some of the organizations getting those funds are raising eyebrows. Yeah, the funds were part of the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, uh, run by the Small Business Administration. And we found out about this information because of a list that the SBA released this week. Some well-known names on that list include Willow Creek Community Church, Reformed University Fellowship, Mission Aviation Fellowship, and the prominent evangelical publisher, David C. Cook. Also on the list, Joyce Meyer Ministries. These Christian ministries are among the tens of thousands of organizations that received PPP funds. So, Warren, why single them out? Is there anything wrong with taking these funds? No, there there isn't anything wrong with taking the funds. In fact, Ministry Watch's position from the beginning, and we've written about this several times on our site, has been that if these funds are available to private businesses and secular nonprofit organizations, then religious organizations should not be discriminated against. They should have equal access to these funds. So why is this story important? Well, for several reasons. First, in order to receive PPP funds, an applicant must affirm, and I'm going to quote Natasha directly from the application, current economic uncertainty makes this loan request necessary to support the ongoing operations of the applicant. So in other words, you have to need this money to stay in business. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's pretty obvious that uh, this might be true for some of the Christian organizations that are on that list. We reported, for example, a couple of months ago that Willow Creek Community Church was, in fact, having financial difficulties. But we also reported just a couple of weeks ago that Elevation Church, a megachurch in Charlotte, is flush with cash. It had a cash surplus of 25 million dollars last year, and it has total assets of nearly $100 million. So it's not at all clear how an organization with so much cash could ethically say that cash was needed to support ongoing operations. Yeah, I see your point when it comes to Elevation Church. But for churches that really needed this money, hasn't this been a good thing? Well, it has been a good thing financially for them, but even so, it still shouldn't be a private thing. These organizations are taking taxpayer money, and they're taking it because they say they're in financial distress. The public deserves to know this. 
Orrin, I noticed that you said at the top of the story that religious organizations took at least $6 billion. Are you saying that it could even be more than that? Oh, yeah, a lot more. Uh, the data released by the Small Business Administration this week uh, were divided into broad categories, and the $6 billion number assumes that organizations took out the smallest loan in the category they're listed. Uh, the total could be as much as nearly $10 billion, $9.7 billion to be exact. And I should point out, too, that while funds awarded under PPP are structured as loans, they're 100% forgivable if the money is used for payroll and other essential purposes. That means that these payments are, in effect, grants and not merely loans uh, to the funded businesses and organizations. Warren, we can't itemize the entire list of ministries uh, taking these funds, but can you highlight a few that took at least $5 million? Yeah, among the ministries that received loans of between 5 and $10 million, a couple of them we've already mentioned, Reformed University Fellowship, that's a well-known campus ministry that, in fact, is a subsidiary of a denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, it operates on more than 200 college campuses and other locations, mostly in the United States, but abroad as well. Joyce Meyer Ministries also received a loan of at least $5 million. So did Oklahoma City based Life Church, which is currently led by Pastor Craig Groeschel. New Life Church is an evangelical megachurch in Conway, Arkansas, and they received between 2 and $5 million in PPP funds. And a lot more ministries took between 2 and $5 million, and they include Shadow Mountain Community Church, which is led by the well-known radio and TV preacher David Jeremiah. And you can find the entire list of all these different ministries at ministrywatch.com. Warren, I'd like to shift gears a bit. One of the organizations taking money is Canacook Camps, a popular Christian camp near Branson, Missouri. And they're in the news this week for another reason. There's been a huge COVID outbreak there. Yeah, at least 92 positive COVID-19 cases linked back to Camp Canacook's K2 site, according to area health officials. The camp has now been shut down for the current term, although they are making plans for an abbreviated session later in the summer once staffers have been isolated and they've all been tested. At least 5,000 students have gone through the camp so far this summer, many of whom came from out of state. The K2 is one of six camps operated by Camp Canacook. Yeah, Randall Williams is the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services spokesman, and he said that the camp was aware of the risks that they were taking by opening up and provided an extensive plan to both prevent and respond to the outbreak. As part of uh, Canacook's opening plan, uh, for example, the staff took temperatures, they wore masks, they uh, cleaned carefully, they practiced social distancing. But these precautions didn't actually stop the outbreak at all. Yeah, well, it, they didn't. You're right. And some parents are complaining that they didn't get the notification soon enough. But I should also say that none of the other Canacook sites, and uh, there are about a half dozen locations uh, scattered throughout the region, have reported any positive COVID-19 cases, at least publicly. Now, other popular summer camps are offering a modified schedule for activities. 
Yeah, Young Life has canceled most summer camp activities. Colorado-based Summit Ministries, which offers normally a two-week summer residential experience in Manitou Springs, has moved to a 100% virtual camp this summer. Most local YMCA branches are still offering some form of day camp, but others have canceled and there are virtually no overnight camps. The Boy Scouts of America shut down its flagship camp, Philmont Scout Ranch, which normally hosts about 25,000 scouts and their adult leaders every summer. Now, Warren, we have to take a break, but when we return, the private family saga of Pastor John Ortberg has become a public controversy and we'll have details. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And we'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's SaveTheStorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, the Little Sisters of the Poor win a Supreme Court decision that will have impact on many other Christian ministries. Yeah, the Little Sisters of the Poor finally were able to claim victory at the U.S. Supreme Court this past week after the court upheld 7-2 to the Trump administration's contraceptive exception to Obamacare. Uh, The United States Department of Health and Human Services back in 2017 had carved out this religious exception uh, to the infamous birth control mandate of the Affordable Care Act, and it allowed some employers to opt out of providing birth control and what they consider to be abortion-causing drugs as part of their health care plans if it violated their religious convictions. Lower courts had blocked those changes after states that were led by Pennsylvania and California sued. And they threatened organizations and ministries like the Little Sisters of the Poor um, telling them that they needed to provide the drugs or face enormous fees and fines. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in a majority decision that the Trump administration was within its rights under the Affordable Care Act to make the religious exemptions and followed appropriate procedures in doing so. Yeah, and earlier, Natasha, I said that they finally won, the Little Sisters of the Poor did, because this is actually the second time that they've been before the high court. The Little Sisters first sued the government way back in 2013 in response to the original Obamacare 2011 birth control mandate, requiring them to provide free uh birth control to their employees. And of course, many of their employees are nuns, right? So on its face, it was kind of an odd requirement. But in 2016, the Supreme Court heard this case, but sent it back to the lower courts, after which the Trump administration crafted this religious exemption. So their fight has been going on for at least seven years. 
Yeah, they, it has. In fact, um, you know, the Little Sisters of the Poor have been around for about 150 years, caring for poor and elderly. And now, almost a decade, they've been in this fight with the federal government. Uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor have, have been given a new nickname, you might say, especially in pro-life circles. And they're being called the most tenacious nuns on the planet. <laughs> So, Warren, I also understand that there was another important decision from the Supreme Court this week. Yeah, another 7-2 to two decision. The court ruled that Christian organizations do, in fact, have the right to hire and fire people based on their adherence to the group's religious principles. The case revolved around what has been called the ministerial exception. In other words, who is really a minister? Uh, it is obvious that when you want to Baptist pastor or a New Testament professor at an evangelical seminary that you want them to adhere to the tenets of the institution. But what about a math teacher at a Christian high school? Should the high school also require those teachers that may not be teaching Bible or religion to adhere to the principles of the school? But the Supreme Court ruled this week that it can. And this ruling will provide important protections, not just for uh, the organizations that were involved in the decision, but for thousands of Christian organizations all around the country. Now, Warren, let's pivot in our conversation and give our listeners an update on megachurch pastor John Ortberg. Yeah, you know, Natasha, this is a complicated story, one that we've reported on before. We mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, um, but there's been some new developments, and I'll try to keep the story as short as I can and just recommend to everybody that they go to uh, the ministrywatch.com website to look at the entire story. But uh, in a nutshell, this story began in the summer of 2018 when a volunteer at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church uh, came to Pastor John Ortberg seeking help. It seems that this volunteer was working with children and youth uh, at the church, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he told uh, Pastor Ortberg that he had been experiencing unwanted, an unwanted thought pattern of attraction to minors, and he needed the pastor's support. Well, that sounds like the kind of support that a pastor might be called upon to do. And I think most reasonable people would congratulate the pastor for being so uh, accessible to discuss such an issue and perhaps even affirm the volunteer's willingness to deal with this issue biblically. Yeah, that I think you're right. So you might say so far so good, but the story really quickly gets more complicated. When this volunteer said that he had never acted on his attraction towards young people, Ortberg just took him at his word and didn't remove him from volunteering with the youth at the church. And that really should have been what he did in that case. It should, that was a reasonable course of action. Further, I should also add, and this is where the plot really thickens, this volunteer was not just any volunteer. It came out last week that the volunteer was Johnny Ortberg, John Ortberg's adult son. Wow, you're right. That definitely does complicate the situation considerably. Yeah, making it even more complicated is the fact that all of this was made public by John Ortberg's daughter, Johnny's brother, Mallory, who now identifies as a transgender man named Daniel Lavery. Now, Mallory, or Daniel Lavery, has already been estranged from her family because the Ortbergs had refused to accept Mallory's transgenderism. So many observers uh, looking at this think that Mallory is using this situation to get back at her family. All that sounds like a huge mess. 
But Warren, whatever Mallory's motives, it's important not to gloss over the fact that John Ortberg should have taken uh, his son out of youth ministry as soon as he learned about his son Johnny's sexual attractions towards underage children. Well, you're Natasha, you're absolutely right. And I think both uh, John Ortberg and the Menlo Park Church now uh, realize that as well. The church did an investigation. They asked Ortberg to take a leave of absence and go through a short restoration process. He's apologized to the congregation and recused himself from further oversight of any situations that involve family. Members. Uh, it's also important to note that though Johnny Ortberg confessed to his family his unwanted attractions, no one has come forward to say that he has ever acted on these attractions. Nonetheless, um, you're right, this was a, a really not a good situation handled clumsily by everybody involved. And because it was handled so poorly, it allowed Mallory, who has since become an outspoken transgender activist, to discredit her family and the church in ways that will likely have an impact for years. Now, Warren, before we go to break, can you give us a quick update on what Christian colleges are planning for this fall? Yeah, I can. We asked Steve Raby, our, one of our freelance writers, to look into uh, what was going to be happening with colleges. And uh, we should say that it's been four months uh, since COVID-19 has closed down America's colleges and universities. That's literally an unprecedented event, at least in American history, maybe not in world history. But um, the schools have been going through a really painful process of deciding what to do next. In fact, the Chronicle of Higher Education called it the Great Reopening Debate. Um, that same article in Chronicle of Higher Education uh, has been tracking the fall reopening plans of more than a thousand schools, and they've come to this conclusion. About 60% are planning in-person classes, 23% are proposing some sort of a hybrid model, and the rest are going online only, or in some cases, closing down for a quarter or a semester, still trying to figure it out. A survey of about a dozen of the better-known and best-rated Christian colleges and universities by Ministry Watch found out that all are inviting their students back for the fall, um, though they acknowledge that campus life won't be what it's been in the past, sort of that free-flowing socialization and, and um, you know, mixers and all the things that you do to kind of get freshmen involved in campus life. Uh, they admit, too, that any sort of an outbreak of COVID uh, could send everyone right back home again. So what all do you think will be different this fall? Well, many Christian uh, schools, including Taylor University in Indiana, Messiah College in Pennsylvania, and Azusa Pacific University in California, they're going to be requiring masks, social distancing throughout the fall semester. Um, they're going to both start and end earlier than usual so that when they send kids home for Thanksgiving, they're not bringing them back in December and putting them at greater risk because of traveling and also uh, being exposed to family members who are then, you know, maybe bringing COVID back to campus. So it sounds uh, like in general that a lot of these schools are trying to go ahead this fall. Yeah, they are. Uh, George Fox University posted a statement prominently on its website that seems to be speaking for, I would say, most of the Christian colleges. That statement read in part, the world is different now, but we need Christ-centered education 
more than ever. Now, that said, George Fox University itself is going to keep all of its freshmen off campus. Uh, George Fox Digital will allow first-year students to take a year of general education courses completely online before transitioning to the on-campus instruction in year two. Now, Warren, we're going to take another break, but when we return, Wheaton College fires its chaplain, Promise Keepers is back, and the next installment of our series on generous living. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host, Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Wheaton College last week fired its chaplain, Tim Blackman, for inappropriate comments and actions of a racial and sexual nature towards specific staff members in violation of the school's policies. A Wheaton president, Philip Ryken, emailed the announcement to faculty, staff, and students on Friday, July 3rd. And this is in part what the statement said. While Reverend Blackman did not engage in sexually immoral relationships or physical sexual misconduct, the investigation revealed conduct inconsistent with Wheaton's policies and commitments. Following this investigation and adjudication, as well as a trustee review process, Tim Blackman is no longer employed at Wheaton College. Blackman had served as chaplain at Wheaton since 2015. Before that, he was senior pastor at the American Protestant Church of The Hague in his native Netherlands. He also pastored River Rock Church in Folsom, California, and he graduated from Calvin Theological Seminary right here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. On Tuesday, the recently resurrected Promise Keepers announced its lineup of keynote speakers for its 2020 Global Digital Experience, a free live stream event on July 31st and August 1st. And Warren, the Ministry Watch story on this announcement points out that some of these speakers have controversial pasts. Yeah, some of the scheduled speakers, including Tony Evans and Steve Arterburn, uh, spoke at Promise Keepers events during the ministry's heyday back in the 1990s. Other speakers, though, have seen their share of controversies in recent years. For example, uh, David Barton of Wall Builders has spent decades claiming to be a historian of America's Christian heritage while also working for the Republican Party and Republican candidates. Uh, Publisher Thomas Nelson took the unusual step of 
pulling David Barton's best-selling 2012 book, The Jefferson Lies, exposing the myths you've always believed about Thomas Jefferson because of its looseness with the facts. Another one of the Promise Keepers speakers, John Gray, is another pastor with a checkered past. He's currently the senior pastor of Relentless Church in Greenville, South Carolina, while simultaneously serving as associate pastor of Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. Gray has been known for years for his lavish spending, uh, concerns about his own marital infidelity, and he's now embroiled in at least two lawsuits that we know about. He recently bought his wife a $200,000 Lamborghini sports car as an anniversary gift. Wow. Well, given that, it's nice to end the program today with another of our generous living stories. And today's story features a Harvard MBA grad who is making big money, but who thinks there's more important things to do with his money than spend it on Lamborghinis. Yeah, that's right. In fact, not just one Harvard MBA grad, but two. Greg Balmer and John Cortines were both in their 20s when they met at a men's Bible study as MBA students at Harvard. And when they graduated, they immediately stepped into six-figure jobs. But Greg and John and five other guys from that Harvard Bible study decided that they wanted to stay in touch with each other and form an accountability group um, that would sort of pick up where their Harvard group left off. They had been meeting daily whenever they were at Harvard, but they've been meeting not quite daily, but regularly ever since. And they also took a course while they were at Harvard, but in the Divinity School called God and Money. And that course, they say, challenged their theologies about money. Instead of asking questions like, how much should I give? They began to ask, how much should I keep? Uh, In fact, the two of them together wrote a term paper on how they would manage wealth were they ever to acquire wealth. And that term paper became so popular among the folks that they just passed it around to among their friends that they eventually published it as a book in 2016 called God and Money. Now, both men and their growing families practice an intentionally frugal lifestyle and have committed to giving away everything that they make beyond the essentials of life. Oh, that's amazing. But can you explain what and who decides what's uh, essential? Yeah, it's a really good question because, you know, we might all, you know, I think uh, Briar's Vanilla Bean ice cream might be an essential of life, but, you know, that's uh, just a personal opinion. Um, And that's why this accountability group is so important and why they decided to keep it going. They actually share their finances with each other, including the balance in their bank accounts and all of their retirement and savings accounts uh, with each other, and they submit to the scrutiny and sometimes to the judgment of the other men in the group. the story that Christina Darnell wrote for the Ministry Watch website mentioned the car that Greg bought when he graduated from Harvard. Yeah, I think that this uh, little detail in Christina's story is particularly telling. So, you know, uh, Greg gets out of Harvard Business School and, you know, he's making a six-figure salary. He finally had the money to buy what he called a cool car, but challenged by his wife, who had also bought into this philosophy, this theology that of giving and money that they were ascribing to, said that, you know, we ought to 
not buy a cool car. Uh, they decided instead to fix his grandmother's 2002 Mercury Grand Marquis that was sitting in her garage unused. And Greg says, that's still what I drive. The car is a daily reminder that my value is not in my stuff or how I look in the eyes of others. Wow, that is an amazing story. Yeah, and there's a whole lot more to this story. These two guys are really remarkable. And, you know, as I've said before, Natasha, we can't all uh, live in the way that, that some of these people that we're describing are living, but it's just a fantastic uh, way to have our mind, our imaginations, maybe even our hearts opened to a new way of thinking about generosity and about money. And as you said, you can find the story at the Ministry Watch website. Yes, you're right. It is very inspiring. And if you would like to read more about this or any of the stories that we discussed on today's program, just go to ministrywatch.com. You'll find them right on the front page. And with that, Warren, we have to come to a close. And do you have any housekeeping items before we go? Yeah, and I want to remind everyone of two other new features on the site. Bobby Ross's weekend plug-in uh, is on our website every Saturday. And of course, the generous living feature that we just talked about. We now have, I guess, five or six of them up on the site. And if you're new to Ministry Watch, I really encourage you to check them out. They're inspiring, challenging, and may cause us to rethink our own way of giving and living. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Christina Darnell, Walker Smith, Emily McFarlane Miller, Julie Royce, and Warren Smith. And thanks to our friends at Religion News Service for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. May God bless you.